welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. As we re-engage with the Gospel of Luke, I'll be reading two portions from it. They're short, but they're uh, informative about the book itself. Luke 1, 1 to 4, and then Luke 19 and verse 10. So let us hear together the Word of God this morning. Luke wrote, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then to Luke 19 And verse 10, a verse that summarizes the passionate story of Luke. In chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's holy word. May the scriptures that we explore today cast the light of the scripture upon the story of the scripture. That's my hope in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, it's been a little over two years uh, since we were last in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Events in our world uh, compel the change for time, needs of the body, and just experiences. But I've decided to come back and and complete this Gospel with you. I began it with you in my first weeks as pastor. And we have been in and out of it over the years as we have gone through it verse by verse. We've covered 19 chapters. Before we move into the 20th and and finish the journey over these coming months, um, I thought it was important to do something that I've entitled Recapturing the Gospel of Luke. It's been over two years. And it's important to understand the big picture of a Bible book before we can adequately understand the, the, the small elements of it and the unfolding story, particularly a gospel. And so I'm going to spend some time today recapturing the gospel of Luke for you. It's been two years since we've been in it, and we've lost touch perhaps with the grand story and the flow of the book, and we're going to talk about all of that today. This, by the way, is part of how you study the Bible. You don't come to the Bible either as an individual Christian or as a Bible preacher, you don't come to the Bible with an agenda or a question or a set of expectations and hunt and pack until you find relevant Bible verses to fit the story in your mind or the needs in your life. You come to the Bible as it is, and you allow it as it is written to be unfolded. You open the truth of the Scripture as it stands, and therein you find everything relevant and everything that God would use in your life. When we look at the Bible, when we begin to study it, we get the big picture first, and then we move through the path of the Scripture and unfold that narrative or unfold that teaching, and we understand it in its context. And so this is how you study the Bible. Big picture, like the the opening of a camera to the widest aperture. You open the lens so wide that you can get all the light possible in on the book or the gospel, or the epistle that you're studying. Then you you tighten the aperture a little bit and you bring the focus down to the nature of how the book flows and, and the themes. And then you get you tighten it down a little farther as you begin to teach through it and you begin to understand where the author is in his intention and in writing and truth in the chapter. And then you move through that and you begin to, begin to break it apart. So it's sort of like this lens that goes from wide open, letting all the light in from all the other scriptures about this particular passage or book or text. And then 
you just kind of tighten it down. So we're going to kind of do that today. I'm going to reacquaint you with really where the the Bible uh, places Luke and what the great story of Luke is. In fact, I'm going to start by reacquainting you with what the great story of the Bible is. You've got to understand any book in the great context of what the Bible was all in purpose written to tell us. Then we're going to recover uh, the, the 19 chapters. You say, how in the world, Pastor, are you going to do that? You've taken two weeks on four words. I mean, how are we going to do that? Now, trust me, I rehearsed this. So we're going to make it. And I know Mother's Day is, is happening, so that's an added pressure. But anyway, reacquaint you with the story of the Scriptures and where Luke falls in that. Then we're going to recover uh, basically what we've, what we've gone through over these months. So you get, bring you up to the place where we stop. And then beginning next week, we're going to restart and, and move all the way through, beginning at chapter 20, verse 1, because that's uh, where our, our teaching ended months ago. So the place in the Bible... And its importance in the Gospels, we're going to talk a little bit about that and the pathway of truth all the way through Luke that we've covered so far. And doing that, when we begin next week to go through it again verse by verse, you know where you are. And you'll be able to understand more of what we'll learn. So when you come to understanding the, the message of a book in the Bible... You actually have to back up further, open the aperture even wider, and understand the message of the Bible itself. The Holy Spirit was intentional in writing this book. And uh, the mind of God included for us only the things that he wanted to include for us to know as his people. But everything that we need to know is included, and there is a purpose and a point to everything in that Bible on your lap or on your electronic device. And so when you're a Bible teacher, you do run into a problem if you want to just teach the Bible for what it is. You don't run into the problem if if you just want to use the Bible for what you already want to say. But if you want to come to it as it is, and and your burden is to tell your people what the Bible in in its entirety teaches us, and then what this book opens up as part of that story, and what the passages really contribute to it all, you've got to really put a lot of thought and study into what the nature is of the full message of the Bible. That's challenging, because before you hear, you've got a book of 773,746 words. I'm not going to tell you how exhausting it was for me this week to count every one of them. (laughs) And I found out I was using a version I wasn't going to preach out of, so I had to do it all over again. No, I just can't. 773,746 words. Lot of content. That's broken down into 31,173 verses. 1,189 chapters and 66, as you know, books. That's a ton of truth. Compiled over centuries of time in different contexts and places and geographies and original languages by many different authors in many different situations of life with many different purposes under one big purpose. How do you decipher it all? What do you understand to be the full message of all of this. It's got prophecy, it's got history, it's got biography, it's got poetry, it's got a didactic teaching, it's got deep doctrine, it's got simple heartfelt advice to people uh, grappling with problems of the faith, it's got geography, it's got all kinds of historical sweeps and everything else, and the, the mighty, mighty story of the cross and the deepest doctrine of all, the doctrine of salvation. What's the great story in it? What's the grand truth that it's all seeking to communicate? And you say, wow, as a preacher, it must take you years to learn that. Well, I cheated. And I went to a mentor of mine. Uh, He's a mentor of, I think, any Bible teaching expositor, and that's the Apostle Paul. And I went to look at how he handled his churches. And I looked at how he spoke to his churches And what he taught them in the limited time he had, sometimes only weeks, mostly only months, rarely did he have years with any church. And I went to what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
And he describes his teaching ministry and he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's an interesting point. He didn't come using what he knew about the scriptures uh, to prove his own points or or bring his own message or perform to gain a hearing in an audience. And that's what all of the other speakers were doing because the Greco-Roman world was fond of great communicators. Gee, is there a connection today with us? They were in love with platformers. But Paul said, that's not how I came to you. Look at the next verse. For I decided, this was my message to you. This was the sum total of my teaching and preaching. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So take a look at the master teacher. What was the essence of the message that he brought? A man schooled in the Old Testament, a man who was receiving direct revelation as apostle to provide New Testament truth, the ultimate resource at the time, the man who knew most about the revelation of God on planet Earth. He could have taught them everything. He could have gone into all kinds of themes of truth. But when Paul boiled down what the message of God's word was, here it is. The theme of the word of God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. 773,746 words. All were left to us to capture that story. I looked at another church, the church at Ephesus, that he had the most time with of any churches. He spent almost three years there pouring out his mind and soul. And as he left that church, he gathered the elders together And he summarized his ministry. So again, he was a teacher. How did he summarize what he taught out of everything God said? But I do not account my life. This is Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. So in other words, this is... God gave me three years in my course of ministry with you, my race of ministry, and I wanted to use that time completely because I knew my time would come to an end, and I and I, I labored wisely. How did I make sure that I finished my course? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What's the grand story of the scripture? It is the great story of Christ crucified. He says, now behold, I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul said, I only had three years, but I spent my time on the most important thing, the great story of the scriptures, which is Christ and him crucified. People look at the the, the, sta- the phrase, the whole counsel of God, and they say, well, that means that, that Paul must have taught him from Genesis through whatever he knew. Th- that's the way you teach the whole counsel of God. You go stem to stern. And, and, and yet, I don't think that that's the nature of what he did. Word counsel there could be rendered thoughtful plan. When somebody comes to you with a problem, they come asking for your counsel, Right? They have an unsolvable situation. They come to you for true guidance about how to solve the situation. What is humanity's greatest problem? What is the great human situation? It's our lostness in sin before a holy God. And he came into Ephesus preaching the great solution, the counsel of God, the plan of God to solve man's greatest need. What is the whole counsel of God? Acts 20, 27. Go back to 1 Corinthians 2, 5. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let me give you the, the first idea in, or point in my explanation of what you need to understand to understand the gospel of Luke. And that is, number one, that there is a solitary foundation of Jesus Christ that runs under all the scripture. The solitary foundation of Jesus Christ runs beneath all the scripture from Genesis 1-1 to the last words in Revelation. This is why Paul said, When I come and anybody that's going to be judged at the great judgment seat of Christ as a pastor is going to be judged based upon what he built on the foundation of the gospel. You get the foundation wrong, everything collapses. So I would put it this way. 
To understand any portion of the Bible, you need to understand where it falls in this this great, what I would call, glory story centered on the cross. Everything in the Scripture, in some way or another, amplifies that, illustrates it, predicts it, explains it, or rejoices in it. You see, it's, it's all about God being glorified through this grand drama of rescuing lost people. That's the whole Bible. I mentioned there were 773,746 words. And maybe to give you a little set of perspectives, some, some things to, to hang your thoughts on, some rocks in the river, as I'm fond of saying, let me see if I can summarize the entire Bible, not in 773,000 words, but in six words. We begin with the word creation. There was indeed a beautiful creation that, uh, that marked the beginning of human existence, the essence of it. We, need, we know that that story began in the Genesis dimension of the Scriptures where God created the earth and it was created good and man was the capstone of God's creation, described as very good at the end of all of that marvelous patterning. And why did God create man? Well, the Scripture tells us early in Genesis that man and woman were created in the image of God. We are uniquely designed beings. We have the ability to reflect depths of the nature and the person of God. And as such, we can reflect God's glory before him in a way that no other creation or creature can. And that was the will of God in the beginning, that, that we would, some, some have put it in this phrase, image God and God's glory. Wanted to gain glory from the creation of man and woman and from their living out in obedience to him. That was the grand beginning of it all. It was, a, it was a beautiful creation, but we all know that something happened, and that's the second word. The first word would be creation. And this is, by the way, you've, you may have heard this in, in other dimensions of faithful Bible teachers over the years. This is a, a snapshot way and, and a few words of giving you a biblical theology, of helping you understand what the whole story of the Bible amounts to. I've learned these words for decades from teachers. So a, a beautiful creation was followed by a horrible fall. That makes sense. Now, you, you're still tracking in your Bible timeline, aren't you? A horrible fall. Man decided not to, to come under God's will or stay there, rather. Adam and Eve revolted against God, placed themselves in the, in the space of his glory, and, and that was the fall into sin, followed by the curse on the planet and on man and woman, and, and the, the inflowing of sin from their lives throughout the heritage of humanity. It was a universal disaster, a moral collapse. Man's moral guilt meant that he could no longer draw near to God. And so this massive separation occurs that unless something is done, will last into eternity. Because man, though finite, sinned against an eternal God. Well, into this great moral disaster, God moves and he begins to inaugurate the plan of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He begins by choosing a nation out. And so that's the third word, nation. We know that to be the, the premier nation in the story of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And God inaugurated his saving plan by choosing out a people, thoroughly undeserving, through whom he would start to display his glory and through whom he would begin to communicate his word and to whom he would teach the elements and the essentials of how those separated from him, man and woman, could still worship him through the pattern of sacrifices, ways that God allowed sinful people to draw somewhat near to his presence. And then he also revealed his ways, his moral character, through the law that he gave to Israel through Moses. And, and he gave them his word and, and through the prophets, and they began to place truth and, and scripturate it under the Holy Spirit. He taught them the issues of worship and how to come to him through sacrifices, and he began to explain his ways, not just to them, but the scripture says in Isaiah that they were supposed to be a holy witness to all the nations. 
and to show the nations God's word, how to worship him, how to draw near to him and his holy ways. And in the midst of that, he began to author through them the story of a coming Messiah, a lamb of God represented by every lamb held in their arms just before sacrifice, who would come and take away the sins of the world, his Messiah, his beautiful son. Now, Israel received all of this truth, but fell continually into sin, violated their birthright in a sense. And in in the long run, they did not obey him as he wanted them to. And God placed them under judgment. It was a judgment where they were taken out of their land in ultimate terms. And they remain under what the book of Romans calls a, a temporary place of judgment today. And yet God, who made a commitment to them as his people, is not finished. All the prophets have this recurring great promise that though Israel has failed and fallen in faith, God is a covenant-keeping God, and he's going to restore them at the very end of, of history, and they will indeed see the one whom they have pierced, and they will come finally to Messiah. That's in the prophetic future. You'll see that as the the eons unfold and even as the years unfold here as Christ returns. But Israel carried the word and the method of worship and the very ways of God. And so we have that. That's the lion's share of what your Old Testament was about. So that's three words. A beautiful creation, a horrible fall, a chosen nation to begin to express God's method and plan of saving people and God's word and God's character. And then the most marvelous word in the series, and that's a perfect Savior. Now you understand a little bit about how your Bible is flowing, don't you? A perfect Savior would come. God sent His only Son into human history through the nation of Israel, born in the likeness of men, Philippians 2. And this wonderful son submitted himself fully to the will of God to go to the cross for you. And on the way, he did two things. Theologians remind us he did what Adam could not do. He resisted sin all the way through. That was the purpose of the temptation where Christ stared down Satan eye to eye. So he resisted the temptation that Adam couldn't or didn't. And he also did what Israel couldn't do. He lived an entirely perfect life under God's ways. So he took a perfect life to that cross his perfect obedience to the law with it. And he became a curse for you. He paid the price for your disobedience to all these things. He took upon him the wrath of God that poured an unshirted hell upon him, the wrath of God for sinners, so that after he took that and then rose from the dead, now the mercy of God can come to sinners instead. Isn't that a great part of the story? So a beautiful creation marred by a horrible fall It's followed by a chosen nation that begins to deliver this great salvation story, and it's all achieved by a perfect Savior who arrives in time and space in Israel. That's the story of the Gospels, by the way, as they sit right in the middle of your Bible. And then there's two other words, people, a new people, that have come out of all this, beginning at Acts chapter 1 and 2, and all the way through the the epistles. Who's that? Well, that's a people that that are called the bride of Christ or the church. Those that all come, Jew or Gentile, into faith in Christ in this era. They now form a rescued people. Unlike the Jews in Israel who knew God's ways, but were not indwelt by God's spirit. We are indwelt by God's spirit. And we experience the transformation and the movement of all of that. And so we're now part of that story from the perfect savior to a new people. We've been baptized into Christ through his death and resurrection. The scripture says we are now all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What's our job? Do the same thing Adam and Eve were called to do. Give glory to God. (laughs) But now we're inwardly equipped and empowered with a new desire to do that. And the will of God for his new people is to increasingly show his glory and share his gospel in this lost and darkening world until the last word is spoken. What's the last word? A perfect future. When God calls an end to human time, and he swept every heart into his his marvelous family, 
every person that's going to come. He then will bring human history to a close with the fantastic return of his son. First for his church invisibly, and then finally very visible to the whole world. And then he will judge the nations, and he will judge all that remains. He'll sweep Israel in, for they will see the one whom they have pierced and mourned. He'll fulfill all of his great promises to Israel because he's a promise-keeping God. He'll author something called the Millennium. Scripture speaks about it in many places. In fact, not one of the Old Testament prophets do not touch on the great thousand-year reign of Christ that will follow the judgment of the nations and in which we will be a part. And then when that marvelous time is over, he'll recreate a new heaven and new earth and we will go into what the Bible calls the eternal state. You can read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. The greatest concentration of truth about heaven in the Bible. And that will never end. And we will be rescued. Those who were part of a beautiful creation who endured a terrible fall will now be part of a perfect future. And that's the story. The story of the Bible in six words, if you will. Now, when you, when you look at all of that, the application for you in your life right now is this. Don't miss the real story of the Scripture. What I've just described to you may be new to you if you're a newer Christian, but it also is new to a lot of people who are more experienced Christians because, unfortunately, the, the flowing story of the Scripture is often lost in teaching today. You might be sitting saying, this is news to me because I thought the Bible was a rule book. Pretty much. That's what I always kind of grew up under. I thought it was a rule book to show me all the ways that in which I've fallen short, but all the things that I need to do and keep doing to please God. No. It's about Christ crucified for someone like you. I mean, you might be thinking, well, no, I, this is a surprise because I've really got the impression from what I've heard and what I've read that the Bible's really kind of a handbook to happiness. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a manufacturer's handbook. It's the user's guide with a lot of ideas and principles and, and wisdom and, and maybe even promises that I can use in my life to experience a more satisfying life. No. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified, whom, as we heard read earlier, said, you have a greater need than a satisfactory life on Monday. You need eternal life. Lose that life to gain eternal life if you have to. You might be thinking, well, you know, this is news to me because I just thought the Bible was predominantly a history book. You have a dusty old history with the Jews and all the armies and all the conquerings, and you got some little, little less dusty New Testament history, and it's just it's a fascination book. No, it's about Christ crucified. That's a real event, and the resurrection means it goes beyond history. So you might think, well, you know, I just I've always kind of felt that the Bible's kind of a mystery book. Most of it you can't understand. It's lots of symbols and lots of outlandish descriptions and lots of mystery, and it's just a mystery book. No, Paul said it's very clear what it's all about. Christ crucified and risen. Finally, maybe the most popular way of people looking at the Bible today is it's just another spiritual book. It's a spiritual book, like many of the other spiritual books out there in the world, and there's some things in it that are helpful or illuminating that help us all on our many pathways to get to this basically unknowable God and it helps us feel a little, little closer to Him. I use it with a lot of other spiritual books and no, that's not true about the Bible. It will not allow itself to be used alongside of a, a bunch of other spiritual books. It is the only book inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, and it has one message that no man would write. And that is Christ crucified. 
No man wants to write about his sin. No man wants to write about how lost we are. No man wants a savior. Man wants a religious system. Lots of spiritual books have religious system. This is the only one that says no religious system will bring you to a holy God. No, you must meet Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now you're starting to get it. Don't miss the real story of the scripture. And as I teach it to you, my earnest desire is that I will return you to the story over and over again. I mean, this even teaches you how to break down your Bible. It's very simple. If you take a look at your Bible, either held in your hands or looked at electronically, the Old Testament, you can just use the word prediction. It predicted Christ crucified over and over again. Clearly, or in through, in through prophetic words, Dr. Albert, Alfred Edersheim, the great Old Testament scholar, the greatest ever, in my opinion, in terms of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, identic- identifies 456 different verses in your Old Testament that, that explicitly describe Christ as he comes or refer to him. And all that was fulfilled, 300 prophecies plus fulfilled when Jesus came. So the, the, the first two-thirds of your Bible, if you will, is what I would call the prediction portion. That's what it's all about. Jesus Christ is coming. The Gospels, the, the, the sector here in the middle, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I would use the word uh, their description. They describe the arrival of Jesus into history, the life, the teachings, the works, the wonders, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and they describe Jesus Christ when he finally came and was crucified and risen. They describe all that the world needs to know. And then finally, what are the epistles, the last portion of your Bible? Really beginning in Acts chapter 1, though it's not fully an epistle, it's a history. And heading all the way through is what I would call the explanation And that is, everything that runs in your Bible after the Gospels is an explanation of what God predicted and what God did in Jesus Christ. How do you live out a new relationship with the living Christ? What do we need to know about him to grow more deeply with him? So prediction, Old Testament, description, Gospels, and explanation of how to live it all out in your life, that's all the rest of your New Testament. So we've labored in this a bit. But you need to understand that the first essence element of understanding your Bible, wherever you are in Revelation 13, 1 or in Exodus 12, 8 or wherever you want to be, is the grand story of it. Now, if that's the case, let me go now to the Gospels. And the second thing I want to talk about today is the scope of the four Gospels. Now we're going to kind of bring the aperture down a little bit. We've opened it to the full light of what the Bible says. Now we're going to take a look at what the four Gospels were all about and why do we have four Gospels and where does Luke sit in the middle of those? Now you might right away go to the question of why four Gospels? I mean, isn't the Holy Spirit intelligent enough to just give us one. You ever think about that? Skeptics do. Why four? I mean, one biography of Jesus should do it. One chronology of Jesus should do it. And when you use those words, you don't understand what the Gospels are. They are not biographies. And they don't go, each one of them, step by step, year by year, moment by moment, chronologically, pardon me, through the life of Jesus. They're not that. They're portraits. And each of them casts a different kind of light on one of the wonders of who Jesus is and who he, he is as a person and what he was when he came to earth. You see, he's so magnificent that the Holy Spirit gave us not one, but four portraits that give us different ways of looking at the magnificence of Christ, because he's a magnificent person, isn't he? He's beyond description. I mean, think of it in the earthly sense. There are some people in our earthly experience whose person was, is so magnificent and whose deeds were so great and whose importance is so indescribable that there are many biographies. How many biographies are there about Abraham Lincoln? Would you guess? There are thousands. 
A few hundred might even be worth reading, but uh, thousands, why? Because of the magnificence of the person, the story of the life, the impact in, in, in the world, all of that. Well, we, for in, in the Lord Jesus, we have four different portraits, and they all differ. Now, well, now, which ones are they? Well, you know them already. Matthew is the first. Matthew, uh, written by Matthew, the Jewish tax collector who followed Jesus that day in Galilee, was one of his disciples, the closest among the twelve in some ways. He wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, a skeptical Jewish audience, who knew what the Bible said in the Old Testament about a Messiah to come. And Matthew wrote his gospel as a portrait of Jesus as the Messiah who fulfilled all the predictions of the Old Testament. Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and rightful king. And so his theme is the the coming king. Jesus Christ is the one who came into history, who fulfilled all the prophecies and who fulfilled all the requirements to be the king of Israel, the Messiah. And so he wrote for his Jewish audience. You're going to find massive points of Old Testament quotation and application in Matthew's gospel. You don't find in the others because he was writing for that audience. He was painting that portrait that the Holy Spirit knows that they need to come out of their Jewish life into a completed life of knowing Jesus as Messiah. That's why the key verse in Matthew 20, in Matthew in many ways is Matthew 28, where Jesus said at the very end, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It was designed to prove that. So that's portrait number one written to the Jews about the coming king. How about Mark? Well, that was written to a totally different audience, to the Romans. The Romans were a secular audience, a Gentile audience, and and they were interested in the impact of a man in the world. And now, if you read Mark, you'll know that it's not not only the shortest of the gospel, it's the fastest gospel. Everywhere in Mark, and a lot of you know this, you find the word over and again, and immediately Jesus did this. Or immediately Jesus said that. And immediately this happened. It's his favorite word. Why? Well, Romans were people of action. They were not people that contemplated philosophy. That was the Greek segment of the culture. Romans were achievers. Romans were doers. Romans were world changers. And Mark described this marvelous Jesus to them as the greatest servant. That was the theme of Mark, the greatest servant of of man and the greatest impact maker in human society because that was the the frame through which the Roman society looked at uh, the significance of the life of Jesus. And so in Mark 10, 45, you've got his theme verse, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as the greatest servant, the impact maker in humanity. You think that story is needed today? Oh, yeah. We're very Roman. Is the story of Matthew needed today? Oh, yes. The Jews and, and people with the, with a religious passion in their life need to see how Jesus fulfilled all prophecy. Let's skip to the fourth. How about John? That was the gospel that was written in the latest in time as the church was already forming. And this was essentially a gospel kind of the world, but, but mostly to the church. And John goes and takes a deep dive into the theology and the nature and the identity of Jesus as both man and God. So Matthew revealed the coming king to to the world. Mark revealed the greatest servant and impact maker in in human life to the Roman world. John reveals the true God to to the whole world, but also to the developing church. This is why John, in the last part of his gospel in John 20, 31, says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He said, I could have written many other books. It it would take all the books in the world and more to contain this magnificent life. But I focused on these things that you might know that he is almighty God. So the coming king, the perfect, the greatest servant, and the true God. Now you say, well, where does Luke fit into all this? Well, Luke, I remind you, like I did when I began, really was written... To, to the secular world, to both the philosophers and the action takers. It was written to the Greek and Roman world. The Greeks were the thinkers, and the Greeks wanted to understand the nature of the perfectibility of man. The Greeks were all about where we are today, believing that man, given the right education, the right environment, the right motivation, and the right opportunity, can become perfect, and he can perfect his world. Does that sound familiar to you? 
That's secular humanism today. Well, it's borrowed from Greek humanism. They were looking for a perfect man, and their society was seeking to recreate, or to, pardon me, to create the perfect man. And Luke wrote to the Greek thinker and to the Romans, and his theme is Jesus as the perfect man. His theme is Jesus as the perfect man, but who came to save. Not a perfect man who lived his perfect life for his own satisfaction or admiration. He took that perfect life to a rugged cross, didn't he? And this is why I read to you earlier from Luke 19.10, which is essentially the theme verse of Luke, if I would identify it, for the Son of Man, that describes Jesus as the perfect man. That's the phrase Jesus used most often about himself in his ministry. It's what the Old Testament said the Messiah would be. He is the perfect man, and he came and took that perfect life to do what? To seek and to save the lost. So Luke's gospel is all about that, the perfect Man. And he writes about him in ways that the other Gospels don't. So now let me get to the final point, and that's the sight line of this Gospel. This is where we're going to run through the Gospel, and, and I'm going to bring you to the point where we left off. It's going to be fast. Luke's an interesting Gospel, written by an interesting man. Luke was uh, the most educated and, uh, and sophisticated of all the authors. His Greek, Greek word, name rather meant charming, and he was. He was an interesting man. He was also called in Colossians for the beloved physician. He was a medical doctor, highly educated in, in both Greek and Roman society and methods. He wrote, he wrote in the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, 52 chapters of Scripture, one-third of your New Testament, and he wrote it all in the most complex Greek that the New Testament has. He was a genius. He was with Paul from the second missionary journey all the way to the end of Paul's life. And then toward the end, after Paul had perished, he began to, he wrote, and he wrote two books. He wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, which we're studying, and then he wrote the book of Acts, which is kind of a summary of Paul's life to a certain point and the growth of the church. Interesting, in all 52 chapters, it's been noted that he really never mentions himself by name. So that's the man. The Gospel itself is very unique. It it is the one of the four Gospels that does follow the chronology of the life of Jesus most closely. There's gaps, but he, he gives you the most complete picture of the earthly three years of Christ's life. In fact, he gives a huge picture of the first 30 years. And there's all kinds of things in Luke that you won't find in other Gospels. The Annunciation stories from the angels are more developed there. The birth of Christ is, is developed in a certain way that you don't see there. There's marvelous songs of praise that you find there. There's, there's all kinds of stories that you don't find there of people uh, coming to Christ and showing faith in Christ. There's stories of the conflicts of Christ as he taught the truth that you don't find there. There's personal stories in Luke that you don't see in any other gospel because he was a doctor and he was a doctor of the human body and the soul. And he loved recounting what happened when people met Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful storybook. He records miracles none of the other gospels write about. There are 19 parables that Luke includes, and we studied most of them, that none of the other gospel writers touch on. They had a soft spot in Luke's heart. So it's a unique book in that way, and, and yet the unity of the book is Jesus Christ who came to seek and save the lost. That's the great story of it. Now we're going to take a look at an outline of it, and I'm just going to speak you through it. So really, I do want you to have your Bible open on your lap in front of you or open uh, in, in, in however, whatever manner you have it. And I'm going to cover the basic flow of the book now, and we'll be done. I'm going to set you up for where we start again and do it next week. The Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters. You'll recall we ended by finishing chapter 19 some months ago. So we've really been through two-thirds of the book and more. So let me take you back over that. And again, I'm going to use some four key words or phrases here to describe each portion. When you take a look at the Gospel of Luke and you open up to Luke 1.1, there, the first three chapters we found were what I would call the identification chapters. They are chapters in which we studied how the Old Testament promises about Jesus coming into the, into the world as the Messiah were fulfilled. 
You've got the predictions of the angels, not just about the birth of Christ, but also the birth of John the Baptist, whom the Old Testament said had to come and introduce the Messiah. There's more detail in Luke than any of the other Gospels. And we went through the life of John the Baptist and the great story of his birth and the angelic predictions and all of those things. So you've got all the miracles surrounding that to confirm that this is the one that the Old Testament predicted. Remember, the Old Testament's function is to predict the Messiah. And Luke is saying, here's the proof that Jesus was and is that Messiah. You've got the birth story of Jesus in there with the shepherds and the angels. And then you have Christ in the early years of his life being presented in the temple and shown to be believed on by people even at that point. John the Baptist goes into his preaching ministry in chapter 3 to lay out 30 years later when Jesus is ready to be presented that Jesus Christ is coming. Repent for the one who is coming to save you is almost here. Jesus arrives, and in the end of chapter 3, he's baptized by John, and Christ's teaching ministry begins. That's chapters 1 to 3. I would call that the chapters of identification. The Old Testament Messiah is identified. And we discovered all that together. Then we moved in from chapter 4 through chapter 8. That section of chapters, I would use the word declaration to describe what we saw there, because chapter 4 through 8 is the, is the sweep of Scripture where miracles are the big event. Miracle after miracle that Christ performed in fulfillment of what the Old Testament said He would do if He was God's Son, Messiah, Savior. Over and over again, they declared Him before all those people to be the Messiah. And people either needed to begin to believe that or they decided to reject that. Some people believed, others rejected, including the leaders. And we'll see that drama going all the way through Luke until crucifixion day. Satan confronts him, and Jesus miraculously stands against him in the great wilderness temptation to prove he is the untemptable Son of God. Demons fall before him in deliverance in many different places. He heals in ways that no one could ever imagine. He, he healed lepers Beyond the realm of human imagination, he raised the dead in Luke 7, healed a leper in chapter 4, defeated Satan the demons in chapter 4 and 5. He, he showed his power over creation. And remember the story of Jesus calming the storm, how marvelous it was to discover that. And they even uh, fed and met the human needs of people as we finished with the feeding of the 5,000 rolling through chapter 9. So it was the declaration of Jesus through miracles. Then we went into chapter 9 and we swept through all the way through, verse, uh, ch through uh, chapter 19, basically. And that's what I would use the word, the instruction of the Son of God. He was... He was uh, uh, identified in the first three chapters from the Old Testament prophecies. He declared himself to be God in the middle, ch earlier chapters, chapters four to eight with all of his miracles. And then he began to instruct the people. And this is where all the parables came out. Remember that? This is all the parables that Luke included that nobody else did because then Jesus began to teach those who believed in him and condemn those who didn't through his teaching and his parables. He also began to teach them something else, Luke 9.22, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus then began to talk in chapter 9 all the way through our chapter 19 about the fact that he was going to the cross. He was not going to be what they expected, a Savior that would take over the planet in glory and free the, the Jews from Roman oppression. No, he was going to go to the cross because it's all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. All kinds of parables. We went through these, the Good Samaritan, parable of the Good Samaritan in chapter 10. We went through the parable of the rich fool in chapter 12, condemning himself to an eternity without God, thinking he was riding high. We went through his great parable about the lost sheep and the heart of Jesus for the lost world and the marvelous story of the prodigal son. Remember, we studied that in Luke 15. So the parables run. People come to believe or begin to harden, especially the leaders, they begin to test him and contest him more and more frequently until finally we ended in chapter 19 on the triumphal entry. Remember that. That's where we stopped, where Jesus came into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, the two-thirds that predicted it all. And he now has come into Jerusalem, and in seven days he will go from being celebrated to rejected adored to crucified, and three days after that, risen. 
So now you know where we've come. Next week, we'll start at chapter 20, verse 1. He's entered Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple. And he begins the final segment of chapter 20 through 24. And I would just call that crucifixion, resurrection. First few chapters was identification, saying he is the one the Old Testament promised. Next chapters with a declaration through all of his miracles that he really is the one God promised. Then instruction for all those chapters about the truth of those who would, who would follow him, what they needed to believe. And then finally, the last chapters we're going to start next week are the chapters of crucifixion and resurrection, sacrifice and miracle. We're going to follow him as Jesus accomplishes his great mission. The next few months are all going to be about seven days, the passion of the Christ and the resurrection to follow. We'll see him rejecting false religion and rejecting those that rejected him and revealing what false religion is. And by the way, does false religion live today? Oh, yeah. And then we'll see him revealing his work on the cross. We'll see him tell final parables and teachings as he approaches it that establishes his authority, how he's fulfilling God's plan. Then we'll watch him and walk with him through the passion of his suffering. And then we'll be there on that resurrection morning. And after when he appeared walking through the wall to his disciples and gave them the great commission. That's where we're headed. So this is the story. This is the place I want you to have ringing in your minds. That's where we're going to head. I would just ask you this as I close. Hearing everything I've said today, you may have started to see the Bible in a new light. I don't want you to see the Bible in a new light. I want you to see the Christ it speaks of. I don't want you to be a Bible student. I don't want to be a Bible student. I want someone who, as I move through this book, sees and adores more deeply Christ crucified. I need to see my Savior. And today, you may be seeing your Savior for the first time. All of this may be coming into your mind, and you're thinking, well, I thought, I thought the Bible was about everything but this. Well, I don't want you to miss the true Savior. You know, a lot of people, you know, I, I've asked, asked this question of a lot of people when they talk to me about Jesus. I say, whose Jesus do you believe in? And they're kind of puzzled. And they say, well, if you've been in a church experience all your life, particularly if you're a younger person, you might believe in your mom and dad's Jesus. I don't care about that. You might believe in your youth pastor's Jesus. That sounds good, but I don't, I don't care about that either. Some of you are, are here because some of your friends are Christian and they're a lot nicer than your non-Christian crazy friends. And you're here just because you want to have some friends. So you're, you're believing in your friend's Jesus. That's not enough. Others are here believing in, well, quite frankly, your wife's Jesus. Because she's always been far more into this than you have. And, and to keep peace and to keep the relationship kind of where it needs to be, you show up here because it keeps, you know, happy wife, happy life. Hey, believing in your wife's Jesus is not what this is all about. You have to come to Christ as he is and as the scripture reveals him, and you have to start believing in your own Jesus. And so over the weeks to come as we study his life, or even today, I challenge you to get out of hitchhiking on somebody else's Jesus and embrace Christ crucified for you. 